This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. So, at this point, we are pretty well ensconced in what we as a nation like to call the holiday season, that period between Thanksgiving and when we start our diets sometime in early January. And while that period encompasses any number of holidays that have enormous emotional and religious significance for lots of people, I have to say that one of my favorite things about the holidays is end-of-the-year lists of superlatives. In the news, it's the year's biggest stories. Elsewhere in the culture universe, it's the best movies or the wildest outfits or the funniest commercials. Really the anythingest of anything in 2006. I don't really care what it is. I'll eat it up like mashed potatoes and pumpkin pie. So it is with great pleasure that this week on Fordham Conversations, we bring you the former publisher of America's oldest weekly magazine, The Nation. Later on the show, we'll hear about some of producer Rebecca Shear's favorite things. But first, although The Nation began publication in 1865, making it again the oldest weekly magazine in the country, Victor Navasky didn't become an editor until 1978. That was after he'd started the political satire magazine Monocle, edited the New York Times Magazine, and written a monthly column for the New York Times Book Review, among other things. In 2005, after 27 years at The Nation, he'd been editor, publisher, and editorial director. He became publisher emeritus. Navasky's memoir of his time at The Nation came out earlier this year. It's called A Matter of Opinion, and it's out from Picador Press. A few weeks ago, Navasky accepted the 2006 Ann M. Sperber Prize for A Matter of Opinion. The Sperber Prize is given to a writer who's published an outstanding biography in the media field. The award's given by Fordham University's Department of Communication and Media Studies in memory of Ann M. Sperber. Sperber's biography of Edward R. Murrow, Murrow, His Life and Times, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Navasky accepted the award after fond introductions by, among others, Columbia Journalism Review editor-at-large Neil Hickey and Patricia Bosworth. Her book about photographer Diane Arbus has been adapted for the movie Fur, and she was a producer on that movie. Navasky began his acceptance with what might be called an edit. John Kenneth Galbraith once told me, when you're making a speech, when you have about 10 minutes left to go, you say, finally, because it puts the audience at their ease. So let me begin by saying, finally, I think you've summarized everything I intended to say, and uh, it's good to be here. I just want to make one little, um, it's not a correction, but it's an annotation. When, when you said that Monocle was out of business, um, our last issue, it's true, was published in, in 1965. But, but, uh, we, our price was $7.50 for 10 issues or $5 for a lifetime subscription. <laughs> you know, it is a very special honor for me to receive an award in the name of Ann Sperber and her great book about a great man, Edward R. Murrow. And, um, when I was 15 years old, I, I was given a copy of Murrow's I Could Hear It Now record. And uh, it was, as Anne Sperber's book reminds us, a scrapbook for the ear. And there never had been anything like it. And I used to listen to it over and over. And um, when I was 73 years old, this is last year for those of you who are interested in these things, I got a chance to go on a panel with George Clooney up at Columbia to talk about his Murrow movie. And I was glad to do that because it seemed to me the Murrow character's message that it's a mistake to confuse dissent with disloyalty has, if possible, as much resonance and relevance today as it had then. 
And the Journal of Opinion, which is, along with journalism itself, the subject of a matter of opinion, is, on one level, the institutional, I think, the institutionalization of Murrow and what he stood for. So I, let me say a few words about television and Morrow and a matter of opinion. First, I hope you don't think it's immodest of me when I say that honored though I am to receive the Sperber Award, and I really am, and I will hang this in my office and be very proud. I am equally proud of another distinction recently bestowed on me. I'm pleased to report that when David Horowitz, one time lefty and now a neoconservative, recently published his book, The Professors, subtitled The 101 Most Dangerous Academics in America, yours truly made the cut. And I don't, I really don't feel I earned it. He got most of his facts wrong, not just about me, but about his 100 other subjects as well. But I will say I was flattered to be included. Which is not to say that being red-baited by David Horowitz is like being red-baited by Joe McCarthy. I know David Horowitz, and he is no Joe McCarthy, <laughs> at least not yet. So. Now, we learn from Ms. Spurva's book that in 1954-1955, which was the height or the nadir, depending on how you look at it, of the McCarthy period, which is misnamed because it started before McCarthy came on the scene, and it lasted after he drowned in alcohol and disappeared from it. In, in, in that year, CBS News formed an editorial review board which decided to undertake a study of objectivity of news broadcasts. A study of objectivity of news broadcasts. The conclusion, summarized in a 57-page analysis marked confidential, was that Murrow had crossed the line but only in his commentaries, which were clearly labeled as such. But did Murrow's opinions underlie his news analyses, Ms. Sperber asks. The answer, she tells us, must be yes. But if such a policy could hamstring Edward R. Murrow, she writes, perhaps it was the policy that needs examination. So I would say a matter of opinion is, in a manner of speaking, the case for having such a policy re-examined. I didn't think of it that way when I started, and I didn't think of it that way when I finished, but I think of it that way this evening. And I, and I do because I went and reread this, this fine book, and it just, uh, that's what it's about to me, and it speaks to me uh, that way. These days, the president of ABC News goes around making speeches, he made one up at Columbia, claiming that opinion, which is supposed to be bad, is driving out objectivity, which is supposed to be good. And a matter of opinion is dedicated to the proposition that it's not quite as simple as that. At the last presidential convention, I went to a panel at the Kennedy School, and on the roster, and this was uh, you know, the Kerry Convention and the, the Democratic Convention, and on the rostrum were every then television anchor, and that most of them are not with us anymore. Peter Jennings, the late Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, who's since retired, Dan Rather was there, and the moderator was Jim Lehrer, and Judy Woodruff was there. And they all did their thing. And then in the question period, Guy got up, and he said, how is it that young people today say they, get their, they don't watch the nightly news, they get the news from Jon Stewart? 
So every panelist on that panel had the same answer, and they all agreed with each other. They said young people today basically, they didn't use this word, but they basically are too stupid to know the difference between satire and the real thing. And, and they're all nodding and all that. And I'm sitting there saying, hey, just a minute, that's not why young people watch John Stewart or why old people watch. People watch John Stewart because he's very funny, number one, but also because every one of those anchors sitting up there pretends that he or she has no politics and, that, and goes through the ritual of narrative neutrality, whereas John Stewart, he never says anything he doesn't believe because he's in the business of exposing hypocrisy. So you, you have this identification with him. That, to me, at least was the beginning uh, of, of trying to understand his appeal. And, uh, and of course, he is a social critic. And when, when Dick Lingaman and I and the other people at the Yale Law School started Monocle Magazine, we felt that it was in the business of exposing hypocrisy and that satire can be a legitimate form of, of social criticism. So when the president of ABC News talks about opinion and says it's a bad thing, what's he really talking about? He's really talking about the shout shows. He's really talking about Bill O'Reilly. That's what he's, that's what he's, opinion as exemplified in these journals, not just the nation, Bill Buckley's National Review, in the Weekly Standard, in the New Republic, which uh, is, is sort of the opposite of what the president of ABC News is talking about, because as, as Patty said, it is a moral political discourse of considerable length that brings logic to the table and makes uh, arg moral argument with evidence that is there for you to take into account. And these are some of the things that I tried to deal with in A Matter of Opinion. Now, I have to confess that one of the reasons that I wrote it when I sat down to write it was no one, as far as I knew, no one had ever written a book about journals of opinion before, and which shows how much I knew because it turned out that Jürgen Habermas, the great Frankfurt philosopher who is obscure to most Americans, including me, uh, had written a book the first half of which was about journals of opinions. He makes the case that these journals, which, by the way, grew out of the taverns that Patty referred to where there was moral, political argument, and the winner of the argument was not the person who had the highest position in the church or the court, but the person who made the better, the better argument. He makes the case that these journals which grew out of those taverns, and you know, they, magazines like The Spectator and uh, Defoe's The Review and Tatler came out first. They put out these sheets that kept track of the court, and then they started criticizing the court they were keeping track of, and then they gave rise to these magazines. He makes the case that they, in effect, are the house organs for the public sphere. And uh, so I was interested in asking the question, are these journals, relics of the 18th century, or are they a real potential counterforce to what's happening now? And earlier, you know, I know you, whoever it was who mentioned The Nation, uh, along with all these other little magazines, made it sound like, you know, isn't that a nice, quaint thing to be involved with? But the way I look at it, 
You know, in the magazine business, survival is the ultimate test of success in the nation, as you pointed out, was founded in 1865, so it's America's oldest weekly magazine. Therefore, despite the fact that it's lost money for 138 years, it is America's most successful weekly magazine. It's still in business. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. In a few minutes on the show, we'll hear from producer Rebecca Shear on why A Few of My Favorite Things is the perfect holiday song, even though it's actually not one. First, though, more from Victor Navasky. Navasky is the publisher emeritus of The Nation magazine. His new book, A Matter of Opinion, is out now from Picador. He spoke to an audience of journalists and other media devotees recently at Fordham, where he accepted the 2006 N.M. Sperber Prize for that book. So I, in the course of working on this book, I um, took some leaves of absence from the nation, and I became a fellow with Bobby Zelitzer, who's here at the Freedom Forum and also up at the Kennedy Institute at Harvard. And I taught some seminars, and I, and I tried to persuade Habermas to come over to talk to our seminars, or even to let me ask him questions and tape his answers. And he, he didn't like that idea. And also, oddly, he didn't want to talk to journalists. And, uh, but I was going over to a conference in Europe, and uh, I, uh, so I accepted the invitation provided I got a stopover in Frankfurt. And then I called his office, and luckily for me, he was out of the office that day, and his secretary made an appointment for me. And I, I, and I made an appointment to go see him in Frankfurt, and then I got a call a few days later, and it was the great man. And he was on the phone, and he said, there's been a mistake. I don't talk to journalists, and I can't do it. I'm too busy, you know. And uh, I said, and we went through it, and he said, well, Fr- Frankfurt's a beautiful town. He said, uh, you know, you can, I said, I have a ticket. It stops over there. I said, you know, you're sort of stuck with me. He said, no, no, it's a beautiful town. You go see your friends and go, and you can sightsee. It's a beautiful place. I said, well, I don't have any friends. And well, this wasn't quite true. Richard Goldberg, who's sitting over there in the back row, is in Wiesbaden, which is just a few miles outside of Frankfurt. But I didn't tell Habermas that. So he agreed to see me for a uh, half hour. And actually, we ended up talking for an hour and a half. And I don't, I'm not going to tell you all the things we talked about. He's a great talker, even though he prefers not to talk to journalists. Um, and when I asked him about objectivity, he said, that is the wrong question. What's important, he said, is extending the range of arguments. It's less important to what conclusion the writer comes. It is the auditorium, the audience, who decides that is the critical thing. And he said, granting all the caveats about the impossibility of objectivity, he added, shaking his head, you should never drop the ideal of reliable information. If you do, everything is lost, which is not to say that reliability is enough. In our business, the requirements are beyond reliability. What is required is the highest level of discourse. You should try to collect the best arguments for the most precisely stated position on the issue under discussion. And then I asked the question, which brought me to Frankfurt. And I said to him, uh, you know, what is, what should be the role of the Journal of Critical Opinion in the next period? And although his answer made to you or today in 2000 sound trivial or obvious, let me assure you that, that to me it had all the clarity of the Liberty Bell. He said, these journals become, for anyone who entertain expectations of the public sphere, these journals become extremely important. At the core of their mission is to maintain the discursive character of public communication 
who else, if not this type of press, is going to set the standards? To set the standard of political discourse. Now, that's a pretty noble, kind of amazing mission uh, for these journals if they live up to it. So I um, finished my interviews with him. I sat down. I wrote my book. And I thought that at, I've, if I hadn't figured it all out, at least I had advanced the way of thinking about uh, objectivity to, in my own mind anyway, and I hope that you know, readers would, would feel likewise. But the truth is that since this came out, barely a day goes by that something doesn't appear in the newspaper that, that, that makes me say to myself, you know, uh, I, I'm baffled. I don't quite... You know, what I have had to say maybe is a start, but it's very far from the finish line. The latest thing that has struck me in the newspapers, and I see uh, people from the New York Times and others here, latest thing that struck me is the New York Times announcement that it would solve the objectivity question through graphics, and that henceforth all news analysis and otherwise non-objective stories, with certain exceptions of certain magazine-type features in the paper, like would henceforth have a ragged right edge. Now, you may not be as close readers as I am, but I, I took this very seriously. And so did the so-called public editor, the guy who writes every Sunday and considers uh, like he's sort of the ombudsman of the paper. And he devoted a column to it. And um, his column doesn't have a ragged right edge, but that's because it's on the editorial page, and that's an exception to the principle of the ragged right edge. But it just means that they, it also comes with a little insignia in the upper left-hand corner where the writer's name is with the thing. So, but I'm thinking, well, maybe that's, that's a good, uh, it's certainly a good thing for the paper to help us understand, if it is possible to disaggregate opinion and fact. And to a degree, as Habermas said, you need reliable information. And some things you can disaggregate and other things you can't, but it goes back to the moral question of whether the question, whether even though he clearly identified commentaries when he was not reporting, whether when he was reporting, his, his assumptions influenced what he chose to report about. So no, no sooner had it been announced that the Times had solved this problem with the ragged right edge, then the paper's public editor dedicated a column to whether it was or was not permissible for Linda Greenhouse, who is the Times Supreme Court reporter, a quite brilliant uh, correspondent, whether it was appropriate for her in a speech she gave at Harvard University on accepting the Radcliffe Prize to give her true feelings about Roe versus Wade, the case of Roe versus Wade. I, I stand behind every word in this book on the one hand. <laughs> on the other hand, to raise a question about whether probably the most informed American journalist writing for probably the best newspaper in the country, whether it's appropriate for her to share her understanding of that decision outside of the columns of the paper, forget inside the paper, because it casts doubt on her so-called objectivity, uh, that question, it seems to me, it makes me think I haven't fully done my job because I don't, I don't see that as an appropriate question. I see that, of course, she should be able to share 
with you or with the people on the occasion of winning her prize, her theories about what the court should do. And yet, here the public editor, the ombudsman of the most important paper in the country is thinks that that's a, an appropriate question. And he has doubts about whether she did the right thing. And, and he's a very smart guy, and he, and he comes from years on the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, I hope I'm not deluding myself when I believe that a magazine like The Nation makes its own contribution to democracy by helping to carry on and clarify the national conversation. But does that mean that I have any doubt that these magazines are important? No, I know they're important. They put new issues on the agenda. They, they advance the conversation. They, they clarify. Uh, they do all kinds of, of critical things. And even if they preached only to the choir, which is not true, which their critics maintain, uh, I would say that they perform a service because they give people arguments to defend and facts to defend what they intuitively understand to be true. And uh, But in any event, if you read the letters pages of the nation, you'll know it's the least harmonious choir in history. It's just a different set of debates go on in a magazine like that than in the general population. But if I had any doubts about the importance of these magazines, I just want to close by reading to you a something I found on my voicemail as I was finishing this, this uh, book, and it was a call from a 68-year-old widow of someone I had met many years earlier who was covering the civil rights wars. We've never talked since then, and then she, but she called from out of the blue, and this is what she said. It's a direct quote. I wrote it down. I need to ask a favor of you. I'm stuck in Abbeville, Louisiana, and I want to move but I want to move somewhere where I can see a Democrat before I die. <laughs> it occurs to me that you might be able to rummage up a place where people are actually subscribers to the nation, where I could have somebody to talk to. I don't want their names or anything. I just want a town where there are a few kindred souls. And she added, if you could call around noon, I'd be grateful. I'm about to cut the grass. So thank you very much. That was the nation's publisher emeritus, Victor Navasky. His book, A Matter of Opinion, received the 2006 Sperber Prize. It's out now from Picador Press. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, looking at the meaning of Christmas tree ornaments. Cityscape with George Bodarchy this morning at 7.30. Now, one end of the year superlative that we've all grown very familiar with is the busiest shopping time of the year. And no matter what you think about consumerism during the holidays, the fact is that gifts have become very much tied up in the whole thing. For producer Rebecca Shear, this provides some insight into one very mysterious holiday time song. I have a confession to make. Each year, when the local radio stations shift into all Christmas, all the time mode, I listen Forgoing Morning Edition, abandoning all things considered, and enduring the every 10 minutes ad blitz of commercial radio, I spend an entire month eating up everything from Johnny Mathis and Bing Crosby to Barry Manilow and Mariah Carey. I even guzzle up those dog barking and cat meowing versions of Jingle Bells 
with a schlock-dipped candy cane spoon. But I wonder about some selections in the 24-7 holiday repertoire. Like, other than the fact that it takes place in an evidently chilly environment, what exactly does Baby It's Cold Outside have to do with the most wonderful time of the year? And as for Jewel's so-called Christmas version of her top 40 hit, Hands, someone ought to tell the singer-songwriter-poetess that the addition of chimes and a children's choir do not a holiday tune make. Then there's that other incongruous omnipresent ditty, My Favorite Things. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Sung by everyone from Babs to Barry to, yes, those good old dogs and cats, this one plays quite heavily in the annual holiday rotation. And sure, we've got the sleigh bells, the snowflakes, the silver-white winters melting into spring, but we've also got whiskers on kittens and schnitzel with noodles. And besides, in The Sound of Music, from whence this number originally came, wasn't Maria singing it to the Von Trapp kids in the middle of a thunderstorm, in the middle of Germany, in the middle of the summer? Then, this year, it clicked. When I heard that Coral Ridge Mall was opening its doors at 7 o'clock the morning after Thanksgiving, and retailers like Kohl's were ringing their registers as early as 5.30 a.m., I understood. With its rhyming roll call of things, Rodgers and Hammerstein's classic has become a tribute to that other standby of the season. Shopping. Bright copper kettles, warm woolen mittens, white cotton dresses with blue satin sashes. Suddenly I envision shoppers attacking the shelves of Pier 1, Target, and Old Navy. I picture mall hoppers schlepping through the snow, lugging their brown paper packages tied up with string. Why, during the month of December alone, American adults will spend a record billion dollars splurging on things. That's an average outlay of $1,338 per schlepper. I mean, uh, per shopper. Which brings me to confession number two. Even we Jews join in the spree. Granted, Hanukkah was not traditionally a gift-giving holiday. Originally, it was meant to commemorate the eight days that the eternal flame miraculously burned in the ravaged temple after the Maccabees drove the Syrians from Israel over 2,000 years ago. But over the centuries, given the proximity of our little festival of lights to the big Yule tide, for many, myself included, some might say that Hanukkah has turned into a kind of Jewish Christmas. During my childhood, while many of my friends scampered to the tree to tear open gifts on Christmas Day, I scuttled to the menorah to rip open gifts on eight days. The week before Hanukkah, my family would draw numbers to determine which night each of us would distribute our presents. To facilitate everyone's shopping, we'd even tack our wish lists to the refrigerator. And here's another confession. Growing up, I never considered such gift-giving wrong. Sure, it was satisfying after lighting the menorah and singing the songs to cap the evening with a copy of that Duran Duran LP I'd been coveting for months. But what I found even more gratifying was the night it was my turn to give the goods. 
After blessing the candles and belting a few rounds of Rock of Ages, I'd scurry upstairs, rummage beneath my bed, and cart my cargo back to the living room. Then I'd watch my big brother grin as he tore the shrink wrap off the latest Atari game. My little sister would squeal as she clutched her strawberry shortcake doll. Mom would beam as she unwrapped a new bottle of Charlie. And after trying on the perennial TJ Maxx necktie, hanky, and or socks, Dad would stand up, wade through the ribbons and empty boxes, and wrap me in his warm embrace. And I'd feel like a million bucks. A mere fraction of the profits Walmart and Amazon.com are expecting right about now. These days, with the family lighting its menorahs in three separate states, we defer to UPS to decide who gives gifts on each night. But we still call each other up to light the candles and sing those songs together. We even post those wish lists, even if the message board has gone from the kitchen fridge to the World Wide Web. So when it comes to shelling out the shekels for those things... I guess I'm just as guilty as the nuts who gulped their Folgers at 4 a.m. to grab the first Tamagotchis at Toys R Us. But I'd like to think that my own favorite things include something more. This silver-white winter, what matters most is bringing a smile to the face of those we love. And come the spring, when our bank balance bites and our finance charges sting, we should remember that. And then we won't feel so bad. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. Up next, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. I'm Nora Flaherty. Have a great weekend, last day of Hanukkah, and Merry Christmas. And we are preempted next week, so Happy New Year, too. See you next year. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.